You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Whistle Stops brought the train into small towns that looked like scenes from an old Western movie. I remember we stopped at one little place, recalled Donald Dawson. There must have been 200 or 300 people there. A cowboy was on a bucking horse showing off for the crowd and trying to act smart. Truman finished his impromptu talk, climbed off the train platform, and approached the man. Holding the horse by the head, he opened its mouth, as only a seasoned farmer would be able to do. Your horse is eight years old, and he's not a very good horse, the president joked. The crowd roared with laughter as the man sheepishly turned and rode away. There's two innovations in 1948 that might surprise people. And we'll start with the first. It's the Kidoozle. And it's an attempt at a jukebox automated supermarket. By applying jukebox principles to groceries, the Kidoozle cuts prices by 10%. Last week, this is Life Magazine, in Memphis, an establishment bearing the mysterious name of Kidoozle was developing a thriving grocery business. The first successful application of the automat, or jukebox principle, into the grocery trade, the Kedoozle had a high novelty value. But it was also underselling even the big chain groceries by 10%. As a result, housewives came from all over to inspect and to buy. The latest brainchild of Clarence Saunders, who gave the U.S. the Piggly Wiggly stores 32 years ago, Key Doozle is almost completely automatic. On entering, the customer takes a key, an aluminum mechanism that holds a roll of paper tape to display cases containing samples of all goods sold. For each purchase, she puts the key in a slot and presses a button. This records her purchase on the tape by punching a pattern of holes. When her complete order has been punched on the tape, she takes the key to the cashier at the front of the store. In a few seconds, Kedoozle's mechanism delivers the order to the customer, waiting in a pleasant lounge near the door. A mysterious entrepreneur, he kept the reason for the name secret, but as Life Magazine says, there's a widely accepted theory that Clarence Saunders got the name for his new store from the phrase, he does all. But Saunders, a soft-spoken man who has made and lost true tr- two tremendous fortunes, has confided that the key doozle actually doesn't mean anything at all. I just thought it up out of my noodle, said Saunders. As a matter of fact, he picked Kedoozle from 100 other names that he thought up out of his noodle because he felt it was a word that could not readily be imitated. 
He has not forgotten that years ago, when his famed Piggly Wiggly chain of grocery stores was making millions, a rival chain blossomed under the infamous title of Hoggly Woggly. Saunders, now 67, says that Caduzel is my final plunge. He built four experimental stores between 1937 and 1946, but mechanical bugs always develop. During a Chicago demonstration, one such nearly cost the life of a reporter under an avalanche of canned turnips. Now all the bugs appear to have been ironed out, and Saunders is certain that Caduzel is his merchandising masterpiece. He points out that in the modest-sized Memphis store, a single cashier can handle five customers a minute, a rate that would be equaled only by a battery of 10 cashiers in the ordinary supermarket. And because of less labor costs, he can sell 10% lower and still make 7.5% more profit. This is what Saunders says. So, unfortunately, Saunders' Kidoozle is not going to be successful, but what a pioneer for the automation of the future and type of all the type of uh, shopping that we see. And this is happening, and people are responding to it in 1948. Meanwhile, another innovator is Edwin Land, and he has been developing polarizer technology that can essentially look at colors and repeat them and put them on paper, essentially color photography. He's developed 3D movies. He's developed special goggles for the military. And that's why they, and and special Arctic goggles, goggles, kind of why the company's called Polaroid. Well, now he comes out with his new camera. That is instant photography, and the first camera is sold in Boston in 1948 at the Jordan Marsh Department Store, right in time for Christmas. It is $89, well out of the price of the average American, but it's a start. And and the Brownie Kodak camera, which can also do some instant photography, but does have to be developed, it's not exactly instant in your hand, is $5 at this time by comparison. Instant photography packs all the operations of a darkroom inside the film itself. The film catches light from the camera lens, turns it into a negative, reverses the image, and makes a positive one, and then prints it right out of the camera. It does it right every time, and the image lasts. Sales exceed $5 million in the first year, and they create something else, a market for color printer paper which doesn't even exist and there's no competition for it. He's getting $1 a sheet for each piece of coated paper that can develop into a photograph before the person's eyes. What's the relevance of all of this? And I've probably made the point a lot in our episode in 2020, and I'll just make it again here, that I think I want people to see 1948 as a bit more modern time than it appears when you do the story of Truman and his train trip across the country and, you know, all the talking to farmers and stuff. I mean, there was that aspect, but that alone wasn't going to win the election for him. It was an important factor. Who Truman was was an important factor. His desire to go out and hit the road, so to speak. But he was always doing all of this in a very modern time. 
So, yeah, and I, we referenced like some crazy events in 1948. And one's very sad. Mahatma Gandhi is assassinated. He's assassinated by someone who is a Hindu nationalist who believed that there shouldn't be Muslims in the country. So that hatred, that racial hatred, even in a country that's throughout the yoke of its own oppressors, the British, and became independent, now suffers the loss of their leader because of religious and racial hatred. We also talked about um, what could be sad, but also a scientific development, that it's 1948. We're not getting any humans up into space yet, but at least a mammal is getting up there. One of the things they do in 1948, kind of showing you that it's a modern time, is they launch a monkey into space. The Americans do. Here's from the NASA information from a NASA website. What I didn't get into about Albert the monkey that is launched into space in 1948 is that, unfortunately, he doesn't survive. Uh, his voyage is one of many attempts to try spaceflight. Um, and they do things like first launching like seeds of corn to see if there is any effect of uh, radiation on it. Then they send a container of fruit flies up and into a V2 rocket to a height of 106 miles. When the capsule's recovered, the flies are alive and well. Unfortunately, Albert the monkey's capsule only makes it to a height of 39 miles, June 11, 1948. He doesn't last long, possibly suffocated even before the capsule hit the ground. Space officially begins at 100 kilometers. So 39 miles is about 63 kilometers. So you actually did make it into space. Um, but his fellow brethren, Albert II, makes it into space a height of 83 miles or 134 kilometers on June 14, 1949. Carried aboard a V-2 rocket. But unfortunately, he's unable to survive because the parachute fails on the recovery. So it makes it there, and then the parachute fails. Yeah, I mean, our space program wasn't treating these animals very well. It's going to take 10 years for this to work out better. The first monkeys to survive the flight into space were two monkeys named Abel and Miss Baker. They flew to a height of 360 miles, that's 580 kilometers, well beyond space, on May 28th. 1959, aboard a Jupiter rocket. It lands near the Eastern Space Missile Center at Cape Canaveral. This is 1959 in Florida, and they were successfully recovered. wanted to sleep a whole day, so I went to the Y to get a room. They didn't have any, and by instinct, I wandered down to the railroad tracks, and there are a lot of them in Des Moines, and wound up in a gloomy old Plains Inn of a hotel by the locomotive roundhouse. Spent a long day sleeping on a big, clean, hard, wide bed, with dirty remarks carved in the wall. Mm -hmm. 
and that was the one distinct time in my life, the strangest moment of all, when I didn't know who I was. I was far away from home, haunted and tired with travel. I was halfway across America, at the dividing line between the east of my youth and the west of my future. A guy with a kind of tool shack on wheels, a truck full of tools that he drove standing up like a modern milkman, gave me a ride up the long hill, where I immediately got a ride from a farmer and his son heading out for Adel in Iowa. In this town, under a big elm tree near a gas station, I made the acquaintance of another hitchhiker, a typical New Yorker, an Irishman who'd been driving a truck for a post office most of his work years and was now headed up for a girl in Denver and a new life. I think he was running away from something in New York, the law most likely. So yeah, you know, in a episode a while ago, I talked about 1948 and the election between Dewey and Truman. And so why are we talking about Kerouac? Because I don't think it's well known that the years of On the Road, Jack Kerouac, I think people think of it as a 50s, maybe even a 60s novel. That's when it came out. It comes out in 57. But it's all you know, written pre-Elvis. <laughs> it's written, it, he begins the voyage um, in the same year of the 1948 election and Truman's train ride through the country. And that's why I think there, there was an interesting contrast between you know Truman's train and Kerouac's hitchhiking, sometimes driving. And the way that he writes it, using a scroll of non-stop typewriter paper, taking Benzedrine, going on long jogs to get himself into the mode to just write and write and write and write. So imitates kind of this American road experience. But I also think the 1948 election and the idea of Truman, like I want to go see the people, is somewhat connected. The people running Truman's campaign is a very modern campaign. The people running Dewey's campaign is a very modern campaign. But the American people aren't all there yet. And so Truman's campaign is kind of a double whammy of appealing to certain special interests, certainly appealing to labor, but at the same time reaching out to farmers who, you know, according to Clark Kifford, he was already going to do well with the Marshall Plan. See, the Marshall Plan is to feed Europe. Well, guess who's going to produce the grain that's going to feed Europe? That's going to help a lot of farmers finding a new um, market. He's very popular with them for that reason, and also because of where he's from, who he is, how he talks. At the same time, it's a very modern campaign, very worked out in terms of the demographic of who's going to vote for who. And you, you, the country is actually more urban than not, in 1948, cities have grown, so this idea that it was just a farmer's campaign, you know, that's difficult. But that's certainly, as the interesting thing is, A.J. Bain points out that Dewey, the urbanite, kind of thinks that he lost because the farmers betrayed him. Truman 
thinks that he won because he had the support of labor. They both may be wrong. <laughs> I give like a third explanation, which is up-ticket, pushing a kind of weak presidential candidate into a win position in enough states. There's all these possibilities, and they could all be happening at once. So I just think that's what's interesting about that election. Truman kind of winning New York. I mean, Truman losing New York, losing New Jersey you know, as a Democrat. I think that it is interesting. We talk a bit about the third-party campaign of Wallace, and that very well gave the state of New York to Dewey. So Dewey was probably not going to win his home state, which gives you a lot of insight, that little fact, into Truman might have been headed for a really big win. So this idea that it was a comeback, there may have been no comeback at all. Um Truman, as president, was more popular than people realized, even if he wasn't, like, superstar popular. Because Dewey barely won his home state. He only won his home state because Wallace helped him win. So even the close election that Truman wins, uh, Earl Warren is a popular governor. They put him on the vice presidential spot, and they can't win California. So it goes to show you, though, it was a pretty weak ticket, even though it seemed formidable. So all the things I think are important in assessing that kind of surprise election. Was there really a surprise or was it just kind of the media and pundits and elites that were surprised and not looking enough? Okay. After a short visit, the president set word for Mr. Rayburn to join. Speaker was a little hesitant about doing so because he had not seen Garner, former VP and former Speaker John Nance Garner, since a coolness developed between them about the third term for Franklin Roosevelt. Rayburn backed Roosevelt. Garner had opposed the third term. Of course, Garner wanted to possibly be in that presidential spot. Everything was friendly, however, when the speaker joined them in the rear car. Old things are forgotten. We left the train and drove to Mr. Garner's home, where he planned a breakfast with Mrs. Garner and many of the citizens of Uvalde. During the occasion, the president drew Mr. Garner aside and presented him with a gift package of two bottles of very good bourbon. Mr. Garner was very pleased with the gift. Since it was Sunday, the president had been advised, advised he should attend church services. He was inclined to agree until he learned that the minister of the leading Baptist church in San Antonio was quite evangelistic and had been critical of the president. Once he learned this, he said he would not attend. Finally, however, he agreed to attend a small Baptist church if the Secret Service could find one and if no fanfare was made about the presence. The Secret Service located such a church, and without any prior announcement, the president attended. This was very surprising, but very pleasing to the young minister and the congregation surprised by the president. From this point, it seemed that we were eventually going up. You know, you couldn't take polls at this time, but Truman's aides on the train think they're going up. We were getting good crowds, despite the newspaper reports that Dewey was a 10-to-1 bet to win the election. They're going to some places in some of these states where Dewey had been before and got half the crowd.
The campaign had gathered more political muscle for the Texas trip. Congressman Lyndon Johnson, who was running for a Senate seat, came aboard the train looking disheveled and bewildered. Texans had just voted in the primary, and Johnson did not know yet how the tally had come out. He hadn't had any sleep or time to shave for three days, remembered Truman, Secretary uh, Jonathan Daniels. The former Speaker of the House and current Texas Congressman Sam Rayborn got on board. Truman did not mention civil rights in Texas, but his integrated audiences spoke for him. Small numbers of black Americans showed up to hear him speak. At one whistle stop, Truman shook the hand of a black woman, ignoring the boos from hostile whites. In some towns, remember Dawson, they didn't even want the black voters to come down to the train. We just told them they were going to come. The president wanted them there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Nineteen forty-eight was all about rock and roll, but not the type of rock and roll you might be used to. It was a very early form of rock and roll that was on rhythm and blues stations, or you might say at the time they would call it race music. Already on the air was There's Good Rockin' Tonight by Winoni Harris. And while Bill Moore was recorded with a song that said, We're gonna rock and roll, we're gonna roll and rock. Lookout Mama, gonna do the rock and roll. And the doo-wop sound that you would hear later in the 50s becomes popular on rhythm and blues stations in this year. It's Too Soon to Know, written by Deborah Chesler and performed by the Orioles. The Orioles were an African-American vocal band, and Deborah Chesler was a Jewish woman managing the group and singing. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald will release a single of that song, It's Too Soon to Know, in November 1948 Well, as well. A few years afterwards, a young fellow 
Elvis Presley will see why Noni Harris performs songs among them, There's Good Rockin' Tonight, in Memphis, and will mimic Harris's style. Harris remarks in a 1956 interview that Elvis's hip movements were stirring controversy, but his never did. Many people have been giving him trouble for swinging his hips. I swing mine, and I have no trouble. He's got publicity I couldn't buy. The Champaign, Illinois County Board of Education authorizes a program in the 1940s in which outside religious teachers are hired by private third parties, and those are churches, synagogues, providing weekly religious instruction in public schools. They have Jewish as well as Christian teachings. The classes aren't mandatory, so to speak. Vashti McCollum was an atheist, professor at a local university teaching dance. Her husband was a professor as well, and she objected. She complained that during these classes, her son was ostracized. The son was put out in a desk on the hallway. So far from being just kind of this, oh, it's voluntary, you don't have to participate. Well, there was no room for atheist students, so they would put him in the hallway, which was the same place where disorderly students would also go. She complained to the school system. They did nothing. She then sues the school system in court. The case starts in 1945. She loses twice. It goes to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1948. You know, it's not just the Champaign School Board that's doing this. It's all over the country. There will be these kinds of like voluntary time or recess time. Vashti McCollum does get support in the case from the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Baptists throughout their history in the United States faced persecution in areas where they were not the majority religion, and so this group was supportive based on that history. However, that didn't reflect the majority of the community and the other religious institutions. The McCollum family endured pushback. Um, McCollum is fired from her university job for vaguely defined reasons. The family is physically threatened, verbally harassed, her and her children wherever they walk. Their home is pelted with rocks, pelted with garbage, and the family pet, a cat, was killed in retaliation for her efforts. It was hung from one of the trees near their house. Hugo Black, in an eight one decision of the Supreme Court writes, the First Amendment rests upon the premise that both religion and government can best work to achieve their lofty aims if each is left free from the other within its respective sphere. Or, as we said in the Everson case, the First Amendment has erected a wall between church and state, which must be kept high and impregnable. Only one justice, Stanley Reed, dissents, The wall of separation between church and state that Mr. Jefferson built at the university which he founded did not exclude religious education from that school. The difference between the generality of statements on the separation of church and state and the specificity of his conclusions on education are considerable. A rule of law should not be drawn from a figure of speech. Nonetheless, this will remain the law of the land, this separation of church and state activities and schools. It won't be the end of any kind of controversy, but this decision's reached in 1948. The court also decides in the same year to ban the discrimination on listing or selling houses 
based on race, limiting houses or buyers of houses based on race. And this is going to start in the late 40s on the path that's going to get us to Brown versus the Board of Education. In fact, many of the same people who decide McCollum, including Stanley Reed, who dissents in McCollum, um, you know, different we're talking about a different subject case, but he will be one of those unanimous judges on the court for Brown in 54. It begins in the late 40s. Here's what McCollum says. Between being praised and persecuted, condoned and condemned, I might understandably have become bewildered, particularly the brand of ethics, sometimes displayed by the staunch defenders of Christianity. But of one thing I am sure, I am sure that I fought not only for what I earnestly believed to be right, but for the truest kind of religious freedom intended by the First Amendment, the complete separation of church and state. America will aim its sights at outer space. Astronomer George Ellery Hale creates the Palomar Observatory and completes the building of the world's largest telescope, the Hale Telescope, in 1948. It will be lighted in 1949 for its first viewing. It is 200 inches, and it's built by Caltech with a $6 million grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. Its lens glass is Pyrex and is made by Corning. A larger telescope would not only furnish the necessary gain in light space penetration and photographic resolving power, but permit the application of ideas and devices derived chiefly from the recent fundamental advances in physics and chemistry. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Not all the news is good in 1948. In the town of Denora, Pennsylvania, five days before Halloween 1948, a yellow fog descends upon the town. It's nearly impenetrable. There's a Halloween parade when the fog first descends, and they're squinting and looking at ghost-like figures. Um, there's a football game. The Denora Dragons are playing Friday night, but their vision is so obscured by the fog that they run the ball rather than throw. 
It's not a game for long, though. Terrified residents begin calling doctors, reporting that they have difficulty breathing. Few doctors in the town are going around with lanterns and walking by foot. It's Saturday when the first death occurs, and within a few days, 19 more people from Denora and the nearby town of Webster, Pennsylvania, die. The funeral homes are out of caskets, florists are out of flowers. It's not just the deaths, although these deaths are significant. Hundreds of people are flooding the hospitals. There's no air. Oxygen supplies are dwindling. It builds up. Chief John Volk of Denora Fire Department and his assistant, Russell Davis, respond to calls from Friday night the 29th until Sunday night the 31st. Initially, deaths are blamed on, well, those are people who have asthma. But it would soon be realized that the problems went well beyond the asthma. Eight doctors in town are getting constant calls until they're able to route it to a single emergency line. One doctor says, I drove on the left side of the street with my head out the window, steering by scraping the curb. Unfortunately, this was not merely a natural event, although natural factors played a role. Hydrogen fluoride and sulfur dioxide emissions from the U.S. steel plants, the Denora Zinc Works in town, and the American Steel and Wire Plant. These were emissions that they would see all the time. Many thousands of the residents worked in the plant. In fact, when investigators first arrive, they're told to go away. But what makes 1948 so severe is a temperature inversion. Warmer air aloft trapped pollution in a layer of colder air near the surface. The pollutants in the air mixed with fog to form an acrid smog that hangs over the town for five days. 20 residents died, and approximately one-third to one-half of the town's 14,000 residents are sickened. Thousands of them. 20 die immediately from the smog. There'll be 50 more that will die of respiratory causes. Sometimes they'll have a heart attack as a result of the viscosity in their blood from these chemicals. The only concession made by the company, they take no blame, is that they shut the plant down for a week while this is going on. All vegetation within a half-mile radius of the plant has been destroyed. Farmers have been complaining about this plant for many years. The smog will, will lift on Sunday, October 31st, 1948, because it rains. Lawsuits are filed against U.S. Steel. They never acknowledge responsibility for the incident. They call it an act of God. U.S. Steel itself will pay more, no more than 250000 not even enough for the people engaged in the lawsuits to pay their lawyers. This is nothing new for them. They've been getting lawsuits from farmers in the area about crop reduction and have become masters at stalling litigation and using legal maneuvers. Residents are a little better off with their suit against the American Steel and Wire company, which settles for $4.6 million in 130 separate damage suits. It's still about 5% of what Lincoln sought. The company doesn't admit blame, but it says it was due to a freak weather condition that wasn't likely to happen again. Not everyone agreed, fortunately, and the Donora smog is an incident that really gives birth to the clean air movement, and, and you could say the environmental movement. In fact, uh, two years later, Truman, President Truman, will convene the first National Air Pollution Conference. Congress will pass the Clean Air Act in 1963, and President Nixon will create the EPA in 1970 and Clean Water Act in the same year. 1948 is a year where you're starting to see the purchase of 
television sets in well-to-do homes, and uh, there are programs. The Ed Sullivan Show starts, and it broadcasts on CBS from the Maxine Elliott Theater, Broadway, and 39th Street. Texaco Star Theater is a popular program with its host, Milton Berle, cracking people up. He's going to win an Emmy Award the next year. The first Emmys will be in 1949, named after uh, the Emmy, which is a um, nickname for a type of cathode ray tube. He wins the prize for most outstanding kinetoscope personality. Something else will start. Lee Wagner, a New York publisher, launches his television guide with a capital V. It'll soon become known as TV Guide. 78 RPM record players are just not enough to put enough songs on. And so two competing formats are going to enter the market. And the 45 and the 33 LP long play format is developed by Columbia Records and marketed in June 1948. Now you can have longer songs. The funny thing is, artists and record companies and radio stations don't tend to change their ways. And songs will still be about three minutes, where it is today, um, that are played on radio. Or even now, with streaming, about three minutes. All based on the old 78 format that couldn't handle much more than that. The real gem of this long-playing record, it's thought is going to be the ability to play long symphonies. The first release is the Philharmonic Symphony of New York. But the 33 LP is going to boost the rock and roll movement in a few years. Something else happens. In 1948, the United Commissions on Human Rights adopts its Universal Declaration of Human Rights. One of its conditions, everyone has the right to leave any country, including his own and return to that country. On September 18th, Margaret Chase Smith became the first woman elected to the Senate without completing another senator's term, when she defeated her Democratic opponent, Adrian Skolton. She was the only woman at that time to be elected to serve in both houses of Congress. When the wife of one of her opponents questioned whether a woman would be a good senator, Smith replied, women administer the home, They set the rules, enforce them. They mete out justice for violations. Thus, like Congress, they legislate. Like the executive, they administer. Like the courts, they interpret the rules. It's an ideal experience for politics. She wins the primary election in Maine and receives more votes than her three opponents combined. In the general election in September, she wins by a margin of 71%. Margaret Chase Smith will run for president in 1964. She's unsuccessful in that effort, but is quite a trailblazer. (laughs) ¶¶ 